For those of us who are basketball fans, this is a great weekend. <laughs> There's some debate whether State fan is a basketball fan. <laughs> I mean, we've got games behind us, but we've got games ahead of us, and, uh, you know, it's, it's fun. And, and you know, you, you've got this huge field of teams out there, and, and the thought is there's, there's one out there that's the champion. There's, there's one, and, and it's just a matter of a week or so that it becomes evident. And that's what the tournament is about, is to make evident who is the best. And so we, we put them up against the best. And even when you get to the final game, only one of them is going to win. Only one of them is the best. And you've, we're going to do this game, and it's going to be evident by the end which one is the best. Uh, I want to just present to you, just like in a lot of things in life, there's, there's only one. When it comes time to the issue of salvation, there is only one method, one, um, one way that is the best, that is the only way according to Jesus. And, and in fact, when it's all said and done and we think about the multitude of ways that people claim to be right with God, when we read the Bible, it actually becomes evident that there's only two ways that people try. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14, he kind of sums it up. Either you're in Christ or you're in the law. There are two camps. One, in Christ. The other camp is in the law. And you think, well, well, now, Pastor, what about that person who is just rebellious against all that people say is good? Uh, what about that person? You say they're either in Christ or in the law. What about that other person? The thing is, that other person still has a law in unto themselves. There is a law that they're living by. It may not be the law that is given to us in the Old Testament. It may not be the law that mama and daddy taught them. But there is a law that they're living by. And they'll say to you, well, you know what? At least I'm not like those hypocrites down in church. I may not do all those things they do. And I do some things that they don't do. But at least I'm true to myself. And that's their, their law. Being true to themselves. And so you've got either two camps. The camp of Christ or the camp of those who are in the law, no matter how they may have picked and chose their law. And so I want to just present to you what Scripture has to say. And, and Paul in Philippians, uh, Galatians 3, 10 through 14 is kind of saying, look, there has been a battle already won. It is made evident which is the winning camp. And so he is talking to people who in Galatia have been exposed to the gospel, have even received the gospel by faith, the gospel of grace. And we talked about what that is already, that it's not that we are trying to do better or trying to improve ourselves, but it is the picture of someone sinking in the middle of the ocean and someone trying to tell that person, if you just swim to the other side of the ocean, you'll get there. And on the other side is God's presence. And, and we look at them in despair and saying, you know, I might be able to swim a little ways. I might even be able to swim a mile 
but I can't make that distance. And what Jesus is, is he is the one who's coming alongside of us and he's pulling us up into his boat and saying, this is the way of salvation. Do not try to make it on your own. You cannot do it on your own. Because if you think you can, you think too little of who God is and you think too much of yourself to think that you could do that. I mean, think about it. If I told you I'm going to swim to Africa, what would you think? He's delusional. You know, he's, he's not in this world. I mean, he thinks too much of himself or he thinks that Africa is not as far as it really is. Well, when we say I'm going to get right with God by being good and doing good and doing the best I can, we're saying the same thing. We're being delusional. We think too high of ourselves, or we think that God's not that different from us. And so Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so this is the message that the Galatians had heard. It is that which they received by faith. But along the way, folks have been coming inside their, their area and been teaching them and said, well, that's a good way to start. But if you really want to get right with God, I mean, you start with grace, start by faith, but it leads you eventually to the law and you must complete the cycle, complete the process, be a Jew, go through the Jewish rules, go ahead and get circumcised, follow dietary rules, go ahead and do these things because then this is how it becomes complete. And Paul gets wind of this and, and tells him and says, look, this is not just a distortion, this is another gospel. And so this letter is written to encourage them to continue their walk of grace by faith. This is the gospel of grace. And so uh, in this argument to say, don't go by the law, he says in chapter 3, the first part, how did you start? Just how you started by grace through faith is how you're going to continue. And then he said, consider Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith. Then he was circumcised. And then we come to verse 10 through 14. And he contrasts those who are in the law with those who are in, in Christ and talks about something called the curse. All right. We, we looked at this. Maybe two years ago, when we went through Genesis 3 and talked about the curse that is actually throughout all the Bible, and Genesis 3 is the beginning of the curse, and then we see in Revelation at the end of the chapter, or end of the book, how the curse of God is being reversed by the gospel. Uh, and so we're in, the, we're in process of what's called God's curse being reversed. In the end of time, we'll see it completely reversed. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit, how that works. Now, I, I want you to understand, um, I, this sermon is really geared for, for church folks. All right, this, this sermon is geared for church folks. This text is really geared for church folks. Some, some folks ask me sometimes, why do I preach so hard sometimes? And one of the reasons is because I, I'm not just preaching to folks who I've never met. I'm preaching to the ones who I have met. <laughs> All right? That's why I preach it hard. I, I know, I mean, we laugh about that, but I know that there are those in our church who are resting on good works, who are trusting and being a good person. And the scripture says that person is damned. They are accursed. And so why do I preach so hard? (laughs) Because I know there's people that are within the sound of my voice, week in, week out, that unless a radical change occurs in their heart, they are going to die and go to hell. 
Is this something I won't know? No. But I believe it's the frank fact. And some things are worth getting excited about. But I know that it's not by any kind of speed talking on my part. It's going to be by the Spirit of God that something seeks into your heart. You know, see, we can, and Satan can make us feel that just by having God talk in our life, the fact that we go to church, that we pray before our meals, that we avoid gross sins, that we are therefore under God's blessing. Do you know that Satan can make us think that? Just because we listen to Christian radio, we listen to sermons, uh, we might even wear a t-shirt that has Christ on it, we might wear a church shirt. You might go to Sunday school, you might give, by any number of these things that you feel like you're under God's blessing. But as we read this, we're going to find that, that there were people like that in Galatia. Uh, and that's the ones that Paul is talking to, uh, that are resting in this. And so the person who's in Christ and the person who's in the law can look exactly like. Do you know that? By looking at their outside life, they don't look any different from the one who's in the law versus the one who's in Christ. They're doing the same actions. The difference is why they're doing it. In fact, Jesus said there will come a day in Matthew 7 where even those who said, Lord, Lord, Jesus is going to set them aside and said, I never knew you. So you even can have such God talk like saying Jesus is Lord and still be in the law camp instead of the camp of Christ. So what is the divide? Well, it's those who continually rely on the living Christ, who understand that they are bankrupt in their spirit and really have no sense of self-reliance on any kind of religious activity that is moral or as intense or as self-reformation uh, disciplines that they might have. They do not rely on these things. This one group that's in the camp of Christ glories only in the cross of Christ by the fact that they are dead. And God declared them dead. But the other group, the one who's in the law, rest in their power, their potential of their self. It diminishes the grace of God, the cross of Christ. One group of church members enjoy the blessing of God promised to Abraham. The other group of church members is under God's curse. And so, with that thought in mind, I want us to go to Galatians 3. We'll read verse 10 through verse 14. And in honor of this being God's word, let's, let's stand as we read this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You may be seated. Now, when we look at verse 10, I think it's very important to note who he's talking about. He's talking to those who rely on the law. All right? So, this is kind of his way of saying, tribe. So, I want to say, those who are legalistic, those who are trusting the law. And as I said before, whether it's the Ten Commandments or the people who've made a law unto themselves to be true to themselves, if they're resting in that, then they are under a curse. For the scriptures, for all for who rely on the works of law are under a curse, for it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy twenty seven, verse twenty six. It says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by tribe. So I want to say law and do them. Now Deuteronomy twenty seven, twenty eight is pretty fascinating to read. God has given them instructions, uh, the people of Israel, as they're going into the promised land. And he says, I want you, when you cross the Jordan River, which was the boundary for them to get into the promised land, he said, I want you to recite the cursings. And the blessings. And Deuteronomy 27, 28 is a listing of curses and blessings. And then he says, and when you cross that, that Jordan River, I want you to, to scribe. So I want, so I want six tribes, uh, to be on, uh, Mount Gerizim. And, and once, uh, the other six be on Mount Ebal. And they're gonna recite the blessings. And they're gonna recite the cursings. And when you recite the cursings, I want one half to respond by saying, Amen. And when you say the blessings, I want the other half to say, Amen. And so it's kind of this uh, choir going back and forth as they're going across the Jordan River, recounting the blessings, recounting the curses that come from uh, leaving God's Word. In fact, uh, I was reading a source and, and said that Paul might have especially associated these curses and blessings uh, in a very painful way in his life. You see, uh, the synagogue manuals that we've, we've come and found have given us uh, some outlines that said that when they do the lashings, the 40 minus 1 lashings that the synagogues would do, that they would often, in these lashings, would require the curses of Deuteronomy be read sporadically during the punishment while, while the whips are going across. Now, Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 11.24 that he received these whippings five times. Can you imagine, you know, how that might impact you when you hear a verse quoted and you associate it with being whipped? Cursings, cursings, cursings. I think Paul, perhaps maybe more than a lot of folks, could have uh, had a, a vivid reminder of what the cursings were like uh, and how it went in the Jewish society uh, when you went against the law of God. Now, the problem with the Judaizers here, the ones who wanted to go back to the law, was that they didn't, they failed to understand to, to say that the law also prescribed that they would live by faith. And so instead of, uh, living by faith, they, they latched on to the actions and started trusting in the actions and forgetting about where it said in the Old Testament that we live by faith. And so their trust became in their performance and their ability. So many times I have folks talk to me and they say, you know, I don't know if I really want to follow Christ. I don't know if I can surrender Christ because I don't know if I can really have the strength to stay with Christ. You know, 
I, I fear if I start following the Lord, I'm going to fall away and I'm going to make Christ look bad. I'm going to make the church look bad. And it's just going to be one more thing that I fell. Please, no, I don't want to step that way. <laughs> and it lets me know that they don't get it yet. Because they think that, that this is by their works. That this is by their ability to stay the course. It's their ability to be disciplined. And, and that's not it. If you're thinking that, then your mind is off track. Because it's not about your ability. It's about what Christ has done. Guess what? You are going to fail. Let me just go ahead and break that to you. Okay? You're going to mess up. You're going to be ashamed of yourself. You're going to be ashamed of others. That's living as humans. There's a part of us. We don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to disappoint myself. I don't want to disappoint my family. I don't want to disappoint this church. There's a part of us, and we understand that. But as we read the scripture, I've told you before, when we get the idea that we are losers, it helps us to understand what the blessings are. When Jesus said, blessed are those who are bankrupt, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who are spiritual losers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we say that I'm a saint, when we say that we're holy, we say it because of this is what God has done for us, not because what we've done for ourselves. So, James 2.10 says this though, For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails at one point, has become accountable for all of it. Now that's the problem. Alright? There are a lot of laws. So we read in the scripture, there's about 250 some uh, prohibitions, 360 some commands. And all it takes is one, according to James 2.10, where we just, oh, I forgot. And you're guilty of all of it. According to God, you are now cursed because of this. Now, would you keep reading verse 11? This is now is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. And here he is bringing out, here it is in the Old Testament, it's here too, that we're to live by faith. The law was not given to us for the purpose of justifying. You remember what we said, how that means? Justified to be in the right, to actually not just forgiven, but to be declared in the right before the God our judge. And so... We, uh, we read this, and okay, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. Uh, in Romans 1.17, Paul quotes it, and the emphasis is on just. Uh, here in Galatians, uh, we read it. And I think the emphasis here in Galatians, especially 5 and 6, is how we live by the Spirit. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, we read it when we studied Hebrews. Uh, and then the emphasis was on faith, of what it means to have faith. And so here it is from the Old Testament, from all the way through, the same theme, we live by faith. Righteous by faith. Just by faith. Like Abraham. Uh, in verse 12, but the law is not a faith. The law is not a faith. And I think what he's talking about here is those who depend on the law. Those who depend on the law, they're not living by faith. Right? Because if someone asks you, why should God let you into heaven? What you'll say is, well, let me give you my catalog. Let me give you my job description. Let me give you my, my resume, if you will, of all the spiritual things I've done. All right? And so that's not faith. That's a list of good works. And so he says that it's not happening that way. Uh, and so, uh, verse 12, Rather, the one who does them 
shall live by them. And so if you're counting on that, that's going to be your master, and there is going to be no hope for you. In fact, Romans 14.23, Paul says, But whoever has doubt is condemned if eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Paul says, if you're not living by faith, it's sin. So if you're living by the law, you are forfeiting the whole point of the law, that it was never meant for it to be the basis of your justification, and you're abusing it, and you're breaking the law itself by depending on the law. And so verse 13, and by the way, when we read that and we hear that little saying, God helps those who help themselves, no, no. Not when it comes to our salvation. That doesn't apply. Because again, it's like God's not sitting by the ocean and says, well, just show me a little stroke, you know? Just let me see that you can swim. The whole point is, I can't do it. And so it doesn't matter. I can't help myself. And for those who understand that we can't help ourselves, God is wanting to help those. God is wanting to save those who can't help themselves. And that is the point when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the point when Romans 3.23 says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That is the point in Romans 6.23 when it says the gift of God, uh, the eternal life is the gift of God. It is the point of John 3.16 when it says God gave his son for eternal life. That is the point, is that we can't do it on our own. Now, verse 13. I'm going to... I'm going to just camp on this one. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us. It's the first time that word's used in, the, in this book. Christ redeemed us. It's, it's the idea, a picture of a marketplace. Uh, it is very much the scene of a slave, which was uh, very prevalent in those days. That was a, a viable economic situation for many people to be a slave. But if they could save up their money and buy back their freedom, the term was redeemed. So the idea is that Christ is the one purchasing us. He buys us back, redeems us from what? From the curse of the law. So get it. When I see little Canaan, he's a cute little guy. I mean, he's he's fun to watch. One year old little guy, a terror. I mean, just anybody that likes order, uh, you know, you're going to hate him coming around. But I know that he is growing into the curse. The curse of the law. Because Christ will have to redeem him one day. Just as Christ has redeemed me. We're born in the state of a curse. So I could say, cursed Canaan. And theologically, be correct, lovingly, be totally off, all right? But it's the same for me. We are cursed, but Christ buys us back. How did he buy us back? How did God attack the curse with the gospel of grace? Well, verse 13, by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. So, we're going to read and we're going to find, uh, well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a great parallel passage to this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of 
God. You see, he, he brings out this idea of, of the cross being a curse. He becomes a curse of law by hanging on the tree. And you think, well, what's the big point about hanging on the tree? He quotes Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Let me read that verse to you. It says, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, the Talmud, which was uh, the Jewish law, recognized four main ways of, of execution uh, for the Jewish people. One was stoning. The second was burning. The third was beheading. And the fourth was strangling. Uh, these were the four main modes. And then after the death, it, it was someone who broke the law. And that was the reason why they were uh, facing capital punishment. Then it gave prescription where they could be Hoisted onto a tree, not necessarily a cross, that wasn't something that they were aware of at that day and time, but to hanged on a tree to show condemnation toward that person as someone who has broke the divine law. But it was, as we read, very careful that they were to remove that body before nightfall, uh, as according to Deuteronomy 21-23. That's why... One of the reasons why Jesus, when he was on the cross, that they were hurrying before nightfall, before the uh, Passover day uh, that would begin at nightfall, they would remove the body and were rushing to put him into a tomb so they would not defile the Passover uh, time, the Sabbath day with them. And so it goes back to Deuteronomy 23. So just in your mind, just think that if you saw someone on a tree, they didn't just accidentally die on that tree, all right? When they were on that tree, it was showed purpose that they were breaking the law and everyone knew it. Just in your mind, think electric chair, okay? Uh, Electric chair is closely tied with capital punishment. Anyone that dies in electric chair, we have in our mind they were there because the government uh, recognize them that this is a person that needs to pay for the crime by death through an electric chair because they're the only ones that have electric chairs, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> you don't see those in someone's basement. Um, it's only the government that has that. And so we closely tie that with breaking the law. So just in your mind, just if you could associate this, anyone that's in an electric chair is cursed, all right? And, and we, can, we can understand what's being said here. And so, here Jesus was, uh, you know, this is not an accident. It wasn't that Jesus was put on the cross by some coincidence of, of some accident of just like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. God knew from the beginning the plan. When he wrote uh, Deuteronomy 21, 23, he knew at that point, even before then, that there would be a day and time when his Messiah, when his son, his priest would come and hang on the very tree that he was cursing. He knew this was going to happen. Clarence Jordan in his uh, cotton patch version had a very vivid uh, paraphrase of this. Jesus did not need to get himself strung up on a tree like a damned fool in order to pass on pious platitudes about human beings to get along with one another and make the world a better place in which to live. We think, good, that's strong language. But you know, that's actually what's being said when he says he's cursed. He's cursed. You see, there are some who look at Jesus on the cross and think, well, you know, that was just a great example for us. That shows us what love is. It does. But it's not just that. 
Jesus did not have to die on the cross to just give a good example for us. All right? That's not what's being said. I think about, uh, I was listening to a, um, a teacher, preacher, who claims title evangelical and was on uh, the news uh, morning shows this past week and went in to state how he really doesn't believe in a hell. Um, There's not a place like that. And the problem is, is that as much as we may long for a theology that doesn't include hell, some kind of belief system that doesn't include hell, if we believe in a life without hell, then how do you explain Jesus on a cross? How do you explain God sending His Son to die on a cross? There is no good way to explain that other than to say that God is an evil father to do that to his son if there is no hell. And so when we see this this cursing, that Jesus himself is the one cursed. How does God attack the curse? How does the gospel of grace attack the curse? It's because Christ was cursed. From Genesis 3 all the way to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 6, you've got the curses that belong to mankind, that belong to this world, they're God's curses for our sin. Now, what's amazing about this as we read that Christ was cursed is that Christ was not guilty one moment of legalism. Christ did not rely in the law. Christ relied on the Spirit of God and the love of God that flowed from the Spirit of God in His heart. He fulfilled the law of God. So when he experiences the curse of all, he didn't experience his own curse, but our curse. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 6 says it this way. Surely, again, a prophecy about the Messiah to come. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, I've brought this to you, that when you think of that sin in your life, that which you're mostly ashamed of, that which your spouse is mostly ashamed of, that which you know that is in your life, Jesus became that. He became that. One thing I can't get past in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's not that he held my sin, he became my sin. And this passage here, Notice in 13, it's not that Jesus just was cursed. He became a curse. He became a curse. You know, sometimes you go into different cultures and societies and they, they have warnings against the evil eye. And if you look at them funny and they do all these little different gestures to ward off the curse of the evil eye. But what do we do with the curse of God. What do we do when God has his evil eye on us? How do we stand when God is the one cursing us? 
That curse is reversed when Jesus comes and says, I'll do it. Jesus was cursed. But listen, I want to bring out one other thought here. How is the curse attacked? Because Jesus was cursed, but also Jesus was cursed by God. Jesus was cursed by God. Do you understand that? When Jesus is on the cross, he is a God-cursed individual. That's why Jesus says on that cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is God-cursed at that point. And then, why? Because it was God's cursing. It was God's law that man broke. And so God is the only one who can give out the curse. But He's also the only one that can give out the grace. Now listen, here's the third one, uh, the third uh, way the curse is attacked. Not only was it because Christ was cursed, not only because Christ was cursed by God. Now listen, listen. Christ was cursed by God for us. <laughs> Do you get that? When you read this passage, put in bold print. Christ was cursed by God for us. For us. Martin Luther described it this way. He writes this. Let us see how Christ was able to gain the victory of our enemies. The sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, fastened themselves upon Christ and condemned Him. But because Christ is God, He had an everlasting and unconquerable righteousness. These two, the sin of the world and the righteousness of God, met in a death struggle. Firstly, the sin of the world assailed the righteousness of God. Righteousness is immortal and invisible. On the other hand, sin is a mighty tyrant who subdues all men. This tyrant pounces on Christ, but Christ's righteousness is unconquerable. The result is inevitable. Sin is defeated and righteousness triumphs and reigns forever. The same manner was death defeated. Death is an emperor of the world. He strikes down kings, princes, all men. He has an idea to destroy all life. But Christ has immortal life. And life immortal gained the victory over death. Through Christ, death has lost her string, his sting. Christ is the death of death. The curse of God waged a similar battle with the internal mercy of God in Christ. The curse meant to condemn God's mercy. But it cannot do it because the mercy of God is everlasting. The curse had to give away. If the mercy of God in Christ had lost out, God himself would have lost out. Which, of course, is impossible. It's just this idea that all of our sin, as innumerable as it might seem to us, and when you combine it by everyone in this room, by everyone in history of this world, when we combine it with all that, sin still is finite. I mean, it may fill the oceans of the earth, but there's still a border to it all. When God says, that's the last sin, that's the last one that man will do some treasonous thought toward me, that's the last one. And if we could see the, the seas of the world filled with our sin... God comes in through Jesus Christ and steps in and says, let me see if my righteousness can deal with this. Let me see if my eternal life can deal with this. And he takes the universe and it matches up the seas of this world with the space of the universe. And it tells us that God is greater than our sin. 
So when Jesus is cursed by God, you ask, wow, how does Jesus went out on that to be cursed by God the Father? The only way that Jesus can win out on that is if Jesus is God. God the Father and God the Son. Because he's got to outlast the curse of sin. And he does. How do I know? Because he rises again. He rises again. And so like Paul, oh death, where's your victory? A grave, where is it? Sting? The sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus hung on the cross. Now, let me just share with you, as much as I may rejoice in this, there are scores and thousands and millions of people that hate this thought. They can't stand the idea of God coming as a man and being cursed. Jews didn't like it, for one. How can God do such? Muslims to this day will tell you, Almighty God, Holy God, Most Magnificent God, would not allow His Son, that if He ever did deed to come as a man, and they don't believe that He could humble Himself like that point, but how could, if He did do that, how could He allow Him to suffer such a death? And they still, to this day, see the cross of Christ as a stumbling block, just as the Jews do did as well. But I'm going to say, the great enemy of God is our pride. The great enemy of God is our pride. And to say that we live in the, the camp of law is nothing but pride decorated with the Ten Commandments. Pride decorated with church membership. And some who say, well, you know what, I'm going to forget all that because that's no fun anyway. I'm just going to be true to myself. That's just pride. Decorated in your own moral code. And your moral code cannot, will not, does not justify you before God. And therefore, grace is given to humble, prideful mankind. Rabbi Ginsburg had a newborn son named Solomon. He dreamed of the boy that would follow him as a leader of the Jews of Poland. However, he wasn't prepared for when the boy turned to be a teenager and age 14. Solomon rebelled against the pharisaical strictness of his home, particularly angered over the girl that his father had arranged for him to be married to. So Solomon leaves home at 15. He wanders around Europe, finally ends up in London, where friends spoke to him about Jesus from Isaiah 53, some of the passages I read to you. After months of anguish, study and pacing the floor, Solomon embraced the Lord Jesus as both his Messiah and his Savior. As you can imagine, the family reaction was extremely violent. The uncle whom he stayed with in London drove him away with curses, broomsticks and hot water. He was disinherited. A group of Jews attacked him and beat him until he appeared dead. When he regained consciousness, he found himself in a garbage box his bones broken and his clothes soaked with blood. Then one day he was summoned before a family council. When he showed up, his relatives tried earnestly to dissuade him from following Christ. But starting in Isaiah 53, Solomon spoke to them about Jesus. One of the Jews began reading the bitter words of excommunication. 
Cursed shall you be by day, cursed by night, cursed when standing and cursed when lying down, and so on. Solomon cut to the core, quietly cried to his Lord. It seemed as he was gazing upon Christ. Arms outstretched on the cross, and above his bleeding head, Solomon saw the words, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And he knew that no cursings of man would ever matter anymore, because Christ was cursed for him. You see, this was the pressure that the Jews would have felt, the Galatians would have felt in this day and time. To look right, act like, talk right, or either come to God by grace. Let me, let me just let me bring it to you this way. If you'd have your others for your child, would you rather your child grow up going to this church or some other church? Talking right, living right. They're not given to drugs or alcohol, not getting drunk a lot, being good with their money, having a good wife, good family life with the kids, being someone contributing to society. Would you rather have them like that, but yet they're trusting in the pride, they're trusting in the works? Or would you rather have a child that's probably broken every rule you ever gave them and proud of it? And you see them, get scars all over their body, the weariness of drug life on their face, they smell, trying to get money when they can. But they come to an end of their abilities, and they appreciate the fact that God saves them. And all those rules of yours they broke, Jesus became. And they trusted in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Which one would you rather have? Maybe that speaks to the heart of it. And what if after coming to know the Lord as Savior, That son, that daughter, they still bear their scars. They still look nothing like you. They still listen to music you don't like. But their greatest joy is Jesus Christ. And their attitude is that of the fruit of the Spirit. Could you handle a tattooed up? Holes everywhere? Smelling? But the heart's right? Could you handle that? Or would you rather them being cleaned up, looking right, talking right, but grace has gone sour in their heart? Which one? It speaks to the heart. It speaks to the heart. Paul says, some of you look like, you act right, you talk right, but you are not right. Righteousness comes by grace through faith. Either you're in the camp of Christ or you're in the camp of works. You can't be in both. Let's pray.